0: My head is full of wander husband My quiver is full of hope. I've got the urge to walk the prairie and chase the antelope. Aspen's gold on snow takes the elk call me away. I can't keep my mind on working on this fine September day. I've got Nimrodarose
1: Long Bows on. The- Welcome to the Track Quest Podcast. I'm your host, James Orr, and joining me as always, Bob the Bowhunter Borland. What's going on, Bob? How much, buddy. How you doing? Just like I, It seems to be a theme to uh, every podcast. Uh, I'm getting tired of the rain, man. I know, man. Gets
0: old. It definitely gets old. I don't think people understand it that don't live in the jungle. Just rains and rains and rains, especially where yeah. you're at. You probably get... 30 40 more inches of rain than i do here a year
1: so it's depressing i just keep taking my vitamin d and and when that sun pokes out every once in a while i go stand outside and i look like i'm praying to the heavens and trying to suck in a little more extra vitamin d yeah well i I mean uh, the rain's not
0: bad when it's not cold but i know you're dealing with it down there too but same up here like we've had snow and then it's off and on and it's like forty degrees and raining, and it's just you can't really, you know, it's just miserable. It's absolutely yeah, miserable.
1: Yeah, th- thirty-seven and raining today. Usually, like you said, it's it's sixty, sixty-five and raining, and it's like, well, it it, it sucks to get wet, but it, at least it's not freezing cold outside. But yeah, the the wind and the and the cold on top of the the rain, it just sucks. Um, it's it doesn't make for good steelhead fishing it doesn't make good, for good shed horn hunting it doesn't make for good scouting it just yeah it just
0: sucks yeah trying to get a i'm gonna actually hit some shed hunting again this year but i got my daughter's gotta go with me you know three-year-old so taking her out in 40 degree and pouring down rain it's not going to be the best experience for where she'll want to go back so i gotta pick my days but i'm definitely looking forward to that when it sun
1: finally comes out Yeah, for sure. So today we've got Ryan Callahan uh, of First Light. Uh, He's also on the National Board of Directors of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, and he is uh, often uh, found on the Mediator TV and the Mediator Podcast. He's a good friend of those guys, and uh, we're excited to have him on the show. He's over there in Idaho, and it sounds like they got Uh, A foot of snow dumped on them Overnight
0: Yeah sounds like it
1: is getting with it Over there Yeah um, it's cool having Ryan on we were able to uh, Dive into The backcountry hunters and anglers And his involvement And kind of where that's going in 2018 Uh, We talked a little bit About him growing up in Montana and we talked about his transition from a hunter to a traditional bow hunter. And we also, uh, you know, got a, got a little bit into the meat preparation and uh, different cuts of meat, which, you know, I think is, uh, it's, as I refer to it on this podcast, it's the gold at the end of the rainbow.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, Ryan definitely represents us all in a very good way. Super good guy to have on, on the BHA, and you know, with First Light, he is what was his official title? The director for conservation or something,
1: right? Yeah, yep, he's the director so, of conservation. So that's pretty cool that a company like First Light has uh, somebody working, uh, you know, at the ground level uh, and putting their roots in deep to conservation because they believe in you know we're not going to have a hunting clothing company if we don't have places to hunt and uh places for hunters to go so i think that that's huge on uh, on their part to having that vision yeah
0: for sure and like you said ryan uh got the traditional bug for sure i think he's hooked and it sounds like uh one of the other owners Kenton is a trad guy also so it's super cool to have him on here and hear his story how he got in and and part of his trad life frustrations i guess we got to talk quite a bit about a alberta mule
1: deer hunt that sounded pretty awesome man i hope you enjoy ryan callahan's trad quest we'd also like to thank our partner kefaro international welcome to the trad quest podcast ryan callahan we hey thank you pumped to have you on
2: I'm uh, happy to be here,
1: (laughs) and and you're you're just sitting uh, at the first light office watching it snow. It sounds like
2: yeah, I'm actually sitting at the first light office and listening to uh, avalanche control bombs going off on the mountain. Uh, I got a pile of snow last night, and that's you know you can't. uh, There's not a lot of visibility, but what you can see is is uh, a lot of uh, deep snow out there. So.
1: You're, uh, you've are you been with First Light, sounds like, from the beginning or near it. Uh, I met Scott and Kenton, who were the founders,
2: um, I think back in 07. And they were f- just figuring things out on the First Light side of things. And, um, yeah, it, it was purely just a uh, – you know, I was – hunting full time, uh, guiding and screwing around and, and, uh, they were, uh, you know, just your, your normal hunters really, you know, just hitting it on the weekends. And, um, so they gave me a bunch of stuff to try out and kind of give them feedback and whether or not I thought it was worthwhile in the kind of guide arena. And, um, and then that kind of turned into, uh, you know, the simple term would be like consulting, I guess. But um, and then started doing some trade shows, and you know, eventually they were like, "All right, we're going to go for it. Going to try to try to do this full time."
1: Yeah, thank and, goodness they. Thank goodness they did. Uh, they got, you guys are putting out some awesome stuff.
2: Oh yeah, thank you. Yeah, it uh, it. I mean, it's been really fun. It's a good crew. At you know, starting from the uh, very very beginning and and moving up and you know bringing in new faces and interns and it uh we've kind of been able to maintain this really good crew over here and uh it's it's been a blast
1: and your uh, official title at first light at the moment is the director of
2: conservation and public relations
1: yeah that's uh, pretty cool
2: yeah pretty darn unique you know we always uh from the very beginning we were always you know donating to to, uh different groups and uh volunteering and helping out where we could and and then um you know i guess what kind of set us apart on the conservation side of things is we were willing as a business to you know kind of champion some of these issues and you know, tackle them directly, um, and advocate for, you know, public lands and access and habitat and all the things that are important to hunters, right. Because we want to, we want more opportunity and, uh, and, you know, bigger animals or, you know, whatever, but, uh, better times in the woods really. So it's, we can, it kind of took us a while to figure out that that was, uh, unique and then, uh, it's just kind of become the conservation has just been hand in hand from the beginning with everything else we do here. And I, I you know, I really think that people are very conscious of that when they're making their uh, purchasing decisions.
1: Yeah, yeah, abso- sure. ab- absolutely. It's uh, really important that we keep wild places wild so we can pursue wild things. Uh, absolutely. Yes. So... And now you have recently been voted on to the uh what is it, the national board of directors of backcountry hunters and anglers, is that correct? Yeah, that's
2: that's correct. So I am a a board member and uh you know that just you know, started here I think I got voted in in December, I think, and and uh, late December and And yeah, now we're kind of rocking and rolling, so.
1: Well, congratulations on that. What does that mean for you, and what what kind of stuff uh, are you going to be getting further involved with uh, with the organization, and maybe give us uh, maybe an update on what backcountry hunters and anglers are uh, up to in 2018?
2: I guess I just don't like being on the sidelines, right? That's kind of the whole impetus or feeling like I'm on the sidelines uh, behind... um, you know kind of throwing my hat in the ring there and so i'm i'm very interested in in actual policy and you know s- staying informed and reading these bills and knowing what's going on um and it's it's shocking at how many folks that i meet that are actually in the political arena that haven't fully read a bill that they're actually voting on and it's it's really not that hard. The the internet is uh you know it's got uh, links that you can go and read these bills and you know some of them are a couple of pages and some of them are you know 17 pages. So um but it doesn't take that much time to figure out what's what's really in there. Um and uh, yeah so that's that's the kind of stuff that I'm into is you know better at at a minimum, I want the hunter's voice to be heard and in the room when these decisions are being made that affect our user group, right? And if it affects hunters, it affects everybody who likes to do anything outside. So, um, you know, what's kind of coming down the, uh, the pipe here is, um, obviously, you know, public lands and access are a huge issue. Um, and certainly something that BHA has really focused on in its uh, mission statement. Um, you know, keeping, you know, big tracts of public land accessible and, uh, healthy and open to the public. So, um, there's a some interesting things come down that I think that, uh, we will certainly champion. And that's, that's on kind of this word access, um, access is, uh, you know, this word that gets thrown around all the time and, uh, you'll hear certain folks say it, um, in a really positive way, but they're referring to access as a place that you can drive in and, hook up your RV um, right now for a lot of hunters that's the exact opposite of where we go to hunt um, it's a nice thing to have as part of like our quiver of options for what we want to do um, given any hunt or recreation opportunity but um, you know we I think that's something that uh, everybody in our community needs to be wary of is is uh, when you hear folks throwing around the word access, uh, try to stop them and see exactly what they mean by access.
1: Yeah, that makes sense for sure. Uh, if we, if we put a, uh, parking lot, uh, and give access to, uh, uh, all these places, uh, it could really ruin the habitat and, and make, uh, the, uh, access for our wildlife to be diminished.
2: Yeah. You know, there's a direct correlation between road density and trail density and, uh, you know, herd density, right? So, um, the, you know, everything is, uh, it's, uh, more, uh, more sensitive than, than we think sometimes and tougher than we think sometimes. So it, it is a kind of a tricky thing to get across, but, uh, you know, I certainly believe in this multiple-use mandate. It's been very, very good to me and, uh, and, and the folks in this office and provides a lot of uh, diverse opportunities out there, right? Like there's trailhead uh, that I can pretty much see from the office here that you can uh, start off with a mountain bike, a motorbike, uh, horseback, and within a mile, um, your motorized users have to go one way, your uh, bikes have to go another way, and your horses have to go another way, so, um, you know, it's, it's, it's really nice because you can kind of choose your own adventure, um, and so I don't want, uh, you know, I want that word access to mean exactly what I think most western hunters think it means, which is just the opportunity to start out, get into uh you know, whatever terrain you're trying to trying to uh, go and play in that given day.
1: So with uh Backcountry Hunters and Anglers being a, a national organization and as you mentioned out west, you know, we're from Oregon. Uh, I think you're from Montana living in Idaho, is that correct? Yep, that's correct. The so the public lands you know are, seem to be a bigger thing out here. But wh- what do you what do you say to get our uh our uh, you know our other brothers and sisters, fellow hunters, uh anglers involved because i know our our mass population in the east and a lot of those user groups seem to be uh used to not having um public land access or or even utilizing the public lands they have it seems to be uh, a lot of pay and play and a lot of private land hunting and fishing so um how do we sell this uh Idea and how do we get them involved in, and and uh, make more public land or save the public lands for the folks in the east and the south and Midwest and whatnot?
2: Yeah, I mean it's it's kind of a funny deal, right? It's it's like you uh, there's a lot of people who will never travel to step foot in a national forest for the sake of going to a national forest. You showed you know somebody in manhattan who just doesn't take those types of trips uh picture glacier national park and that's you know open and accessible to them uh in a variety of ways but uh they're likely never going to go step foot in that place but if you were to ask them is it since you're not going to go there is it cool if we just turn this into a parking lot you know nobody's going to look at that picture glacier national park and I should say very, very, very few people are going to be like, oh, yeah, I'm fine without that, right? Right. Um, And, you know, if you could interact with these folks on an individual basis and present them kind of with the same thing. It's like, listen, I know you aren't going to utilize this, but plenty of people do. I do, you know, way more than most probably. Um, You know, you have a vested interest in this place, whether you use it or not you know, when I'm 90, if I make it that far and I'm staring out my window, I want to be able to stare out at that, at these places that I've, uh, trammeled in my younger days. Um, and, but I'm just not going to be able to get into them like I did then. Right. So I still want them around even when I'm not going to be able to use them. And, you know, it's, it, uh, it's kind of a simple thing to explain and a hard thing to explain. It's like, it's it's easier when you've had the opportunity to go out there and, and get that kind of personal growth on these places and be challenged. And uh, the rewards are uh, so much more rewarding when you can put yourself in a challenging place, right? And these places become so, so, so much more valuable then. And it, that's why it kind of kills me when you talk to these folks that uh, they emphasize the ease, right? Well, not everybody can get in there. It's like, well, how hard are you willing to work?
1: Uh, I love the the the, the motto of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers has. use the quads God gave you, and I I think that keeping it public and uh, organizations like Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, I think it's catching on, and you hear the the Midwest. And East Coast whitetail guys talking about leaving their leases and, and doing it on public land this year and hunting public land. And I, th- I think it's making a, a change. I mean, I'm hearing it uh, more and more. Uh, guys wanting to utilize the public land and, and trying to get it done on public land. So I think it's heading in the right direction.
2: You know, I, I really th- think it is, too. I, I try to be as objective as possible and, um, with you know, all things, uh, first light and BHA now that, uh, I'm on the board certainly. And, um, the, the biggest benefit to the whole trade show stuff that we put ourselves through, um, is talking with the people and, and I am shocked, like Dallas Safari club this year, I was absolutely shocked how many Texans, were going to New Mexico for their first time, going to Colorado for their first time, going to Idaho for their first time to have that public land experience. And they were so excited. And, you know, I I'd, I'd really want people um, to, you know, appreciate these places like I do and you know so i always try to i'm like yeah you guys are going to have a great time but if you get something it's going to be pure dumbass luck so yeah <laughs> you got you to look at it like uh you know like your first scouting trip basically and you're going to be you know every day is going to be valuable cuz you're going to be learning so much and and uh if you get something great but uh You got to be able to, uh, look at all these other things as, as a big benefit and a big win, you know, and yeah, man, people were just fired up to go out and, you know, have these adventures and be challenged and, and get some wide open spaces and, and, uh, you know, kind of not be tied down to the lease on, uh, on private ground. So yeah, I think it was cool.
1: I think it really has to affect you personally before you really can grasp it. Uh, for me personally, uh, I live in the uh, on the Oregon coast, uh, Coos, Coos County, and uh, I cut my teeth uh, hunting and fishing on a piece of public ground. And at the time, I didn't really have an understanding that I was on public. I mean, I knew I was on public ground all the private timberlump uh, companies at the time were basically open to walk in for uh, bow hunters, rifle hunters, fishermen. And so there wasn't a big access uh, issue. And then when uh, the state decided that they were going to sell the Elliott state forest, 90,000 acres, that was literally my backyard. It was connected to the property that I uh, own. I, it, it was, uh, it was huge. It was like, wow, like this place that I knew every single square inch of was going to go away. And at the same time, all these timber company lands were, were, uh, taking access away and they were charging fees. And so like, sure, you could pay $200 for this piece of land or $300 for that piece of land or 350 for this piece of land. Soon you'd have to spend thousands to go access all these timber company lands that my friends were hunting. Um, and, but I didn't, I, it really like shed a light, like this 90,000 acres of land that we can go on for free every day of the year, camping, fishing, scouting, uh, and it was just hours and they were going to take it away. And fortunately, somehow through the help of uh, several organizations, as well as backcountry hunters and anglers and the, uh, our local, uh, community, we convinced the state, which I, it's almost unheard of, to reverse the the sale and not to sell it, and we kept it public. and It's it's huge, and and I really uh, through that process, going to all the meetings and being involved, it really made me appreciate public lands. and I hope that uh, you know the our listeners, if you're not uh, trekking around on public you guys should really look into it and, uh, you know, get involved with organizations like Backcountry hunters and anglers, because we want this stuff for, you know, for, for our children and our grandchildren. It's, it's really important.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, you, you had a wake up call, right? Because you, although you probably appreciated it, you, you also kind of found yourself, you took it for granted, right? Cause you were like, it's a permanent thing, or it feels like a permanent thing, and yeah. you know, unfortunately, the truth of the matter is none of this stuff is permanent, right? Like, uh, look at uh, the monuments decision here in in Utah. Uh, you know, the fact is that uh, you know, as that monument stood, it put uh, hunters in a very good position, right? We, uh, we had the access and it was open to hunting and under that monument designation, we had, uh, basically a leg up on the other multiple uses because, uh, you know, they weren't going to be building new roads. They weren't, uh, going to be entertaining any oil and gas or extractive use leases, you know, then we could go. Basically, the only other uses that we had to compete against were grazing and, uh, you know, the other recreationists out there, right? And, and I we believe
1: were, Oregon's next. I think our national monuments are being threatened as we speak. And that's
2: Cascade Siskiyou, right?
1: That's right, yeah.
2: Which, yeah. I,
1: which I believe is the country, uh, southern Oregon area, like where backcountry hunters and anglers was born.
2: Wow. I, I absolutely understand the uh, the other sides and arguments out there against, you know, the Antiquities Act and monuments and how things go. But uh, in some of these cases, the hunting community has it really good. So, uh, but I guess the silver lining on this is I feel like, people are starting to wake up, right? It's like you woke up one day and your 90,000 acres that you can hop across your fence and hunt your 90,000 acre backyard was all of a sudden going to be blocked off. And, and, uh, you were not allowed to go in there. Um, the folks that were running around on, uh, some of these monument areas, you know, hatching big plans in their brains, uh, thinking about, uh, where they're going to go next. and, and, what type of adventure they're going to have away from uh, roads and uh, some of the er other areas that are, uh, you know, more heavily trafficked, all of a sudden go, oh, shoot, that's not – those plans may be in jeopardy now, right? So uh, I do feel like more hunters are getting involved uh, earlier as opposed to being reactionary um, because that's something – that our community is just not very good at, right? Like, they kind of need to get slapped in their face with something immediate. Like, again, Elliott State Forest, like, holy cow.
1: Yeah, it, uh, it has to get, like, pumped into your own living room before you pay attention, and I can tell you, you guys listening, I mean, if I would have lost this place where I killed my first elk and my first deer and my first bear and I, I guided my mother to her first elk and I took my kids out to hear their first bugles and caught their first fish and did their first camping trips like to lose those uh, places and they're not permanent. It's, it's detrimental to uh, uh, you know, to my family, it'd be detrimental to our uh, society, to our community Um, and we, we definitely need to get involved, um, for sure.
2: Oh man. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, it's, it's sad that we need the threat of something being taken away, right. To kind of mobilize us. But I do feel like it's kind of the, the, uh, the hunting enigma, the hunters quandary, right. Where it's like, there's a part of our brains where like, boy, maybe if we're just quiet, Cause I hunt in there. Not everybody knows I hunt in there, but maybe if I'm just quiet and this thing works out, fewer people will hunt in there and I'll still be able to hunt in there. When in right. reality, we kind of have to say like, Hey, I hunt in there and it's great. Do not screw with this. Right. But right. then we risk people Absolutely. being like, Oh, that's where Callahan shoots a bull every year. Got it. Right. Yeah. So,
1: so transitioning into that, uh, Callahan shooting a bull, uh, <laughs> why don't you tell us a little bit about Ryan Callahan and, uh, you know, how you got to this point, like, were you raised, uh, in hunting and fishing? And I know you've got a, a, a background in guiding and, um, you know, tell us a little bit about you.
2: I, for some reason I was always into hunting, um, but I didn't really have the traditional outlet. Right. So Uh, single parent household and uh, dad worked all the time and he was big into uh, team sports and was always a coach and uh, but we lived right on the edge of the rattlesnake wilderness uh, right outside of missoula montana like i could basically within five minutes on my bike be right on a on a trail Heading up towards the rattlesnake wilderness. So lots of fishing, lots of uh, good stuff going on. And then um, a next door neighbor uh, that I really looked up to um, was uh, this guy, Mark Gibson. Uh, he was super into hunting and he'd let me uh, pester the hell out of him. Um, bought me my first uh, Red Rider BB gun. Yeah, it was just always... Something that, like the whole mountain man thing and everything was just something that I really always, for some reason, have this desire to get into. And, and my mom's side of the family uh, uh, are predominantly ranchers. And um, so they were outside people, but they were working, not playing. And uh, so, yeah, I kind of had to uh, push this rock uphill to a certain degree and, uh, and get, get the adults to entertain me. And then I would say like the formal part of the education really started when I started hanging out uh, with uh, ultimately the first outfitter I'd ever worked for. His name's Larry Pendleton. And uh, man, just a crazy wealth of knowledge and an insane amount of patience. And, uh, and, you know, looking back, he obviously f- had a, v- felt like he had a vested interest in, uh, you know, making sure I had the same priorities that he did and the same ethics. And, um, and that's, that's why he must've put up with me. Cause I did not let that guy, uh, hardly take a breath. Right. It's like, Oh, have you ever hunted turkeys? Oh, have you ever hunted this? Have you ever hunted, you know? Um, and yeah, he, I mean, reloading, shooting, archery, uh, trapping, uh, you know, calling in elk, every, I mean, everything. And then, yeah, boy, once I really started hanging out with that guy, it, it became very, very hard to uh, concentrate on school. And I had a really good bird dog at the time and dropped out of college and, uh, started guiding full time and, uh, started guiding fishing and started guiding whitewater and just trying to keep everything outside. And that was, uh, you know, a lot of living out of the truck and going all around the country and ultimately guided hunts, uh, all over the place and, um, and had this kind of at the time it was very uncommon to do that much bouncing around as a guide it's it's certainly more common now but uh i was doing some field production work for outdoor television and um would uh, you know end up in camp with some outfitter and he could see that i could handle myself and horses and whatever and it became really easy to say hey you know, if I give you a shout next year and you're shorthanded, would love to uh, jump in and guide a hunt or uh, help you out on the packing side of things or the cooking side of things or whatever. And so I got a lot of diversity doing that because um, I could piece in my season. You know, if I was filming a hunt in New Mexico, I could probably guide somewhere for some outfit Within a couple hours or wherever I was, so I had a pretty sweet system in my mind anyway, Um, and uh, it was serious uh, growth for a young dude uh, walking into a guide shack where you don't know anybody, but all they know is that they've never seen you. But for some reason, you have clients to guide in the morning, and uh, you know you gotta gotta learn to make friends quick.
1: Yeah it sounds like you were uh had some great mentors to really get some good woodsmanship skills uh early on how does that um end up transitioning into hunting the hard way you know uh picking up the stick and string and and it, we know that you hunt with multiple weapons but um being the trad quest you know we would love to hear uh about your traditional archery traditional bow hunting uh side of things
2: well, yeah, so, uh, you know, we were a big football family, and I never got to archery hunt as a consequence of that growing up, because we always had always had football, right? So, um, when college hit, this buddy of mine, a uh, kid I was in uh, the dorms with, University of Montana, he had this old PSE bow, and... Eventually we we're working construction together, and he talks me into uh you know we are dirt broke poor at this point, right but I bought a uh a a bowtech um i think it was called a bobcat i think um and that was my first bow, and it was like an insane amount of money, right but it was the absolute like lowest end bow you could get, so I started out you know on the compound side of things. And uh, you know, we'd played around with recurves and stuff on the grandparents' ranch and shot porcupine and stuff like that. Um, but uh, you know, I wasn't even sure at that point if I thought traditional archery was even an option, right? So it got real serious, shot the compound a ton, and then as I started getting more serious and more familiar with it, and wanting to make sure everything was better. And I've always you know, like if you could see my desk right now, it would not make any sense. But there's certain things that I am like very OCD about, really obsess over. Um and and one of those things is like making this ethical kill, right? I'd been around and, and even guided some folks with traditional archery equipment that they could not hit the broadside of a barn. And talking with them they were, you know, very, very rarely Um, successful in in taking an animal and it just wasn't a good example. Right. And I was like, okay, is this an excuse to just not be good at something? I don't, you know, I didn't, didn't really understand. Then uh, Kenton here at the office, um, he is, you know, this very, very uh, methodical shooter and he is incredibly good with mechanics And he can shoot, you know, lights out at uh, the furthest. I could shoot with my compound, with the the sight set up and everything, was like 115 yards. And he would, you know, he'd put six arrows inside a fricking cantaloupe at 115 yards. And eventually, he was like, "Man, this is stupid." like i'm gonna get a
0: recurve <laughs> i like this guy
2: uh, <laughs> yeah uh, and he was struggling with it so he <laughs> he bought me a recurve <laughs> and he's like you got to do this too he's like we got to figure this out together i need somebody to shoot with and and i started playing with it and really really liked shooting but I still had this very negative image of traditional archers, uh, again, from the the people that I I had been around. And like, is this an excuse to just wound things? Is this, you know, what is the deal? But we started shooting, uh, Olympic style and, you know, Kenton's the, the researcher and, and he got us, uh, in touch with some folks and we'd call them and pick their brains and, you know, I ultimately shot that recurve exactly, uh, I, can, I kind of push back on adapting to other, I have to do things the hard way to remember them and, and have them in, embedded in my brain. And, and I've said for a long, long time, I I'd really avoid kind of hunting how-tos and hunt, and a lot of hunting stories because I don't want somebody else's a uh, mistake to become my mistake and I don't want to be out there assuming things in the woods right I, um, and so I took to the traditional side of things in the in the exact same way and uh, I was like well I'm just gonna do what makes sense to me and shoot like I do with my compound and so I started shooting exactly like I would with the compound and and really aiming and Uh, making adjustments off groups and, and I found enough crossover and commonality to where I really started feeling good. And the year before I had wounded my first elk ever. Uh, You know, and I, I truly am even with the compound. I'm a guy who shoots like one arrow a year, right? Cause I just do not, shoot. I do not pull the trigger unless I think it's perfect. You know, I didn't shoot anything with my compound, I think for five years. Uh, cause I just, I never felt like it was in a perfect scenario and I probably wasn't, you know, just uh yeah. kids starting out and trying it all on their own, you know?
1: So I didn't know and anybody you, else
2: who hunted with, with a bow other than this dude, Kyler.
1: And you had wounded the elk with your compound. Is that?
2: Yeah. 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 And, you know, it was at 20 some yards and I hit it in the spine and, you know, like rolled over like shoulder, part of the shoulder and, and, and the spine. And I was like, Oh my God, how'd that happen? And tracked it. And, and the thing ran off. We could, you know, we could see it still going out there like two miles. And I just couldn't figure out how that happened. And we went back and we were, uh, you know, just dinking around and shooting the target. And I was super, super high and on all my shots. And I uh, should probably clarify that, right? When you say you're super, super high. <laughs> uh, and uh, especially for you, Oregon guys. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I my sight and my quiver are attached at the same point, And the whole thing is like rotating and it, some screw would come loose and the whole thing had like tipped up. And, you know, I was like a full, like lock tight guy on all my screws and everything. And, and the equipment had failed. Like I had an equipment malfunction. Not only did it cost me an animal, but I wounded it and I had to watch the thing run away.
0: Wounded. And that's after five years of hard work trying to get that shot too, right?
2: Oh, this is like after many success successful seasons with the compound. Oh okay. uh, yeah, yeah, this is this was, you know, ultimately not that long ago. But so I had that situation and then and then this was on a bow that took me like a dozen broken arrows to tune the thing. And I, you know, I got to this point where I was like, God, is it me or is it the bow? Is it me or the bow? And then I finally got it running great. And then I have a equipment malfunction and, and I screw up. Right. And, uh, again, I have this wounded animal out there. So that really got my brain thinking like, boy, there's got to be an easier way. And this is too complicated. And, and I, more than anything, I just want to know that it is me who is screwing up. Boy, does the, you know, the re- recurve let you know that. That's what ultimately really made me, like, really click with shooting the, the recurve is, you know, I knew for a fact it was me screwing up. You know, my buddy uh, was watching me shoot, local guy here in town, and, and uh, he's like, oh, so you're going to hunt with that this year? It's like, I don't, yeah, I, I just don't know. Uh, You know, occasionally I hit the target and the arrow bounces off because I plucked the string, right? And uh, (laughs) the arrow's sideways by the time it hits the bag. And about five days later, I get this call from another buddy and he's like, yeah, Zach said uh, you wanted to sell your compound. (laughs) And I was like, oh. I was like, yeah, all right. And this guy really needed bow. And, you know, you get good deals being in the hunting industry. And so I was able to cut him a really screaming deal and got rid of the compound. And, and honestly, I've never looked back, you know, but I I will tell you, man, I was absolutely, absolutely shitting bullets on Hmm. that first elk. Like all I had was math, right? I'm like, okay, the math says this bow without any wheels (laughs) is gonna push this stick through this elk (laughs) i've never seen it done actually that's not true but uh hadn't seen it done with anybody uh recently um certainly nobody like in my hunting crew right and uh and yeah man i was just like boy am i being you know, selfish because this is something I want to do and it's not the best thing for the animal. That's the thing that, that was screwing with me the most. Um, but, uh, uh, Scott Robinson and I, uh, go out one night and, uh, we're working a couple of bowls and, and I'm hoping, trying to get him in there for a shot and super fun night and things are screaming and running around and, uh, kind of screw that up and, but I'd seen the spike zipping back and forth. Uh, you know, I was like, well, that's always a great opportunity. And started reefing on the cow call and the spike came in and stopped at, a, uh, don't know, like, uh, four yards probably, uh, smacked it. And, and I honestly, that was kind of a screw up too, because I was so concentrated on like my form that I had kind of made like, okay, if he takes one more step, it'll, it's good. And he was still kind of quartered towards a little bit. So that was another learning process there. But, um, yeah. So I shoot this bull. He runs off, lays down. You know, I hate that mental debate of like, should I wait for this animal to expire or should I try to get another arrow in him So I sneak up on this thing and I'm shaking so bad. I miss it by like three feet. <laughs> at uh, like 12 yards uh you know put uh you know actually pick my spot and settle in and and put another arrow in them um and that was that and i was like and that first arrow was sticking out the opposite side so it kind of went the long way through a spike and i was impressed with that and and that kind of i was like all right you know maybe uh maybe this works And
1: uh... yeah, I can I can relate to that, like that feeling when I made the transition, like, will this arrow go through the like, does this have the power, even though, you know, it does and you've seen you've heard heard it or seen it on TV or on YouTube, but actually seeing that arrow out of your own bow pass through the animal and then you're like, like, it's just like that first animal is like a huge relief. Like, yeah, this this works. It does. It does it.
2: Oh yeah, man. And, and again, like, you know, I, we shot with some folks, uh, Kenton and I both shot with some folks that, you know, the one guy had been traditional shooting for like 17 years. Uh, but he's like the snap shooter guy. And, and he was not fit to be in the woods. Like (laughs) I felt nervous that he was going to you know nail some kid out there on this 3d course and i was like god is this who i'm lumping myself in with like is this what traditional archery is about and you know so i i I just needed to it it was very tough for me that first animal was very very tough because again i was just like you know what we do in this day and age is so much of how we want to do it. Not necessarily the most efficient way of putting meat in the freezer. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was like, have I taken this too far? Is this, uh, again, like just a totally selfish act, man, I, I, I gotta tell you, man, I've come to the point where that recurve is. If I had a compound and a recurve sitting next to each other, as far as like, my preferred tool for elk, I would pick, pick up the recurve. I mean, I really would like the couple of, you know, successes I've had with it have been, you know, there's been a couple of scenarios there where it could not have happened with a compound because of, uh, you know, how close the elk were. And, and that's something that Kent and I talk about all the time is, we've had like these crazy, awesome, close encounters, insanely cool, like bull on your boot tip type of scenarios that never ever would have happened with the compound, you know, and, you know, cause that bull would have stood out there at 50 yards, perfectly broadside and Kenton would have smoked it, you know, with, with the compound. But all of a sudden, you know, we're, having lots of, you know, five to 15 yard encounters. And that's a hell of a lot cooler than what's happening at 50 yards.
1: Way, way cooler.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, that is this hunting is our food dollar, our recreation dollar, our entertainment dollar, all wrapped into one. Right. And I do a lot of things at this point to make sure that that (laughs) the entertainment factor goes on as long as possible. Right. I, I have a really hard time punching that tag, uh, before the season's over. Right. So,
1: yeah, absolutely.
2: Uh, yeah. So I am, I am very, very much hooked and I don't give the old wheel assisted bow any, uh, uh, not even a cursory glance at this point. So,
1: <laughs> and you, you killed a, a bull this year, uh,
2: yeah, I got, that was my furthest shot ever, uh, <laughs> with the recurve and, and I got a, a pass through at 17 yards.
0: Awesome. Nice. That is awesome. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's so much fun. And, and then, you know, I went up to Alberta with, uh, that knucklehead Jeff Lander that, uh, <laughs> you guys just had on and, um, <laughs> and he and I have known each other for a long long time and, and actually got a hunt up there in Alberta um you know absolutely with the exception of a couple of days with just crazy high winds when you know even if you have a compound bow you should not be shooting um but those arrows do fly a hell of a lot straighter in high winds than than uh, my uh, arrows out of the recurve um I would go up and do that hunt with recurve every single time. Like, I was absolutely in the game. I missed probably the largest mule deer I'll ever be close to in my life. You know, I I feel good about the fact that I shot uh, an arrow at uh, a mule deer. Most people realistically never, uh, never see a mule deer this big, let alone fling an arrow at it. Uh, yeah, I, I shot low and it was my fault and nobody else to blame, but me, and that's just the way I like it, you know? Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't see myself going back, uh, anytime soon.
1: That's awesome. So, uh, you had an opportunity on a, on a real giant, huh?
2: Yes. Yes. An absolute, absolute giant. Um, and having to get in close, um and you know close is relative right like i can smack a target plenty well at uh 40 yards to you know if the scenario was perfect at 40 yards um i'd shoot but uh closer is always better and more fun and and uh yeah man finally did every single thing right in a near impossible situation and ended up sleeping on the prairie, uh, next to this very, very large, old, you know, Alberta prairie giant of a mule deer for like two hours. And that's a damn cool experience in and of itself. And, um, you know, with, with the compound, you can definitely sit back in a much safer zone, right? Be out there at 50 yards where a little tiny, movements and things don't produce sounds that something's going to hear on a breezy day Um, and you just can't do that with the recurve and it forces you into cooler situations right so
0: so you laid there next to him for a couple hours you said and then we got to get the miss here so you were waiting for him to stand up or what yeah i was waiting
2: for him to stand up and and it was it was really cool like i i literally Fell asleep out there because one, I was so nervous, right, that I was like, okay, no matter what, I can't shoot right now. Um, it looked like an absolute yard sale behind me across the prairie, right? I had Been there. jackets, pants, backpack out shoes. There. <laughs> yep, and you know, I I was in close enough to where I had I actually even removed the lanyard off of my rangefinder because I thought that was making too much noise I took the quiver off my bow. I had one arrow and, uh, and I, all of a sudden I, you know, I, I woke up and got my act together and looked at, uh, and was watching his rack and it finally tipped over and he fell asleep. Right. So I stood up and ranged everything, um, and then laid back down.
0: And how far, how far were you? What was the range?
2: Well, here's the issue. (laughs) I was getting 21 yards on everything with the exception of like this tall stick, right? Or taller stick. You know, as it turns out, when your face is plastered into the prairie, short grass prairie for several hours, uh, everything looks a lot bigger. (laughs) from that perspective and uh, so I range this one stick that's coming out of the uh, little uh, rose bushes out there and and it says 31 yards everything else says 21 yards and you know it's really all I can do is range things so I probably hit that button a thousand times (laughs) and um, and I picked correctly for once right like so all of a sudden this thing stands up and it was the coolest thing in the world, right? I can see the hairs coming out of its chin and it's looking directly over the top of me. He is looking directly over the top of me. And, and I just had like this oddly, like relaxed feeling because I was so close that he wasn't even, and he felt so secure in the spot and he should have, cause it was literally no cover that, uh, you know, he wasn't even remotely concerned with anything within 30 yards. He was looking out at like the 200 yard zone and then he would nibble on the rose hips a little bit and then turn and look the opposite direction. I leaned back up and ranged him again. Right. And because I, I was like, listen, I know, I know I can kill this thing. And I was stump shooting everything all week long. And I was just shooting lights out all week long. And I was like, I know for a fact I can hit whatever hair I pick if I know the yardage. I know this thing's dead no matter what, but I want it to be dead dead. (laughs) And, uh, so he drops his head again, eats a little bit, looks right over the top of me again. And then he picks his head up and looks the complete opposite way. I draw back and I string walk, Right. And I'm set up for 21 yards and I draw back and I look at him off the tip of my arrow. And I think this is a giant deer, (laughs) like this is a 350 plus pound Alberta giant deer. And he should look a hell of a lot bigger at 21 yards. At the same time, I'm like, you idiot. Don't screw this up. Don't overthink it. Trust your optics. You know, you got a $800 rangefinder that <laughs> says 21 yards. And I shoot for 21 yards, and I put that arrow, like beautiful straight arrow, right on the vitals, right underneath him. And I lay back down and watch him, like, stomp around in the bushes thinking it's like a squirrel or something that was messing around with him and he goes back to feeding and I am so mentally screwed up at this point (laughs) and he kind of walks around and he's still at pretty much the exact same yardage and I work my way over and I snag another arrow and the first thing I do when he uh, looks the opposite way is I grab my rangefinder and click him again. And that was like, that was what broke the camel's back. My mental brain, like, just exploded. Right? I was like, "Why are you picking up this rangefinder? <laughs> it did you know, good the first time around." And. So I'm just like shaking and screwed up and, and that thing is killable, man. I mean, he is right there as the biggest mule deer I'll ever shoot an arrow at in my life. If I'm being honest with myself (laughs) and I cannot, I can't, can't do anything because I'm now I'm like, you're just going to screw this up. You're going to wound this deer. You're going to be a jackass. (laughs) And. I swear to God, he can just like feel the tension and he just slowly turns, walks out to 50 yards, stands perfectly broadside and just stares into my soul. And he knows something's there. He knows I'm there at that point. And he's not because of movement or anything. And he's just staring and he stands there for 20 minutes, perfectly broadside and just turns and slowly walks away. And that was it. And it was amazing. It was badass. (laughs) It was Uh, unbelievable.
1: And and, and like you said, uh, if you had to do it over again, you would have still took your recurve. So we know your hook, (laughs) line, and sinker with traditional archery.
2: Oh, man. Yeah. I mean, and I just, uh, yeah, I just screwed up. And you guys know this dude, uh, uh, Brian Broderick? Yeah. Okay, so, you know, he's a big traditional guy, and uh, we went through this whole story together. He and I were sitting there glassing the same area uh, a couple days later, and, uh, you know, that dude showed up and killed the buck, like, the first five minutes of the first day. Now he's sitting there with me, uh, just kind of helping me spot, and we're talking about scenarios and stuff, and... And, uh, you know, he's really talked me out of string walking now. Right. Yeah. Uh, because he's like, yeah, you've found a way to complicate something that should be simple. (laughs) Right. I feel like that, that is true.
1: I, I I heard Broderick, uh, uh, his account, to his buck on that hunt and Aaron Snyder was standing right behind him when he made the shot and we know Aaron had transitioned to the stick bow and back to the compound, and now he's back to the stick bow. But when when uh, when uh, Brian slipped in on that buck and just made a perfect pinwheel shot on that buck, uh, I, I was I was on the edge of my seat listening to that uh, podcast, and I, it was being told not by Broderick but by Snyder, and I could tell then I was like the the excitement that Snyder had to watch Broderick draw back and just smoke that buck it was pretty exciting I could tell he was on his way back uh, to the stick bow as well
2: oh yeah man you know I was with him uh, when he got uh, his his bear with his uh, recurve and you know he was like first thing he said was like that is the most fun hunt I've done in a long long time. And, it, you know, it was because he had to get in there close and, uh, yeah, man, it, it, it just sharpens your game. You know, I've killed a bunch of stuff and I, it is what I eat. Um, and, but you know, it's the the actual killing part has become such a minimal part of this deal. It's like, there's so many other aspects of this game you can improve on and it's so much freaking fun that uh you know yeah you want to become a better hunter um it's not about dropping arrows in at the 115 yards you know
1: Right mm. so are you are you uh working on doing like uh gap or uh shooting instinctively now is that part of your repertoire or
2: Well I think um the instinct part of shooting has come, uh, you know, kind of by proxy of, uh, gap shooting and really aiming. Absolutely. Because, you know, like I see it, you know, that week in Alberta was a prime example, right? Like I would, you know, guess and shoot something and I'd be a little high or a little low and, then I'd range it and be like, "Oh yeah, here I am," and and be, you know, pretty much dead on.
1: Right? Yeah, I, so, I I agree completely. I uh you know transitioned like most of uh, us younger guys from the compound, and I did a lot of three uh, uh, D competition shooting. And so the name of that game with the compound was Know your yardage because you can't use a rangefinder. So I did a lot of. Uh, working in the woods and just guessing yardages and then rechecking it with the rangefinder and really programming those ranges into my head. And so when it comes to uh, you know, when switching to the stick bow and guys you throw that word instinctive around, I, I like to call it intuitive. I think that I know yardages and I don't say, oh that's 32 yards. I just know what that is and I know what my trajectory does because I'm kind of a one bow guy. I know my trajectory, of my arrow, and so I think it's just a program that I've programmed myself that when I draw back, I know where to hold for thirty two yards or eighteen yards or or whatever, and it becomes intuitive.
2: yeah, man and and that's the thing is you do know right yeah. when you When you know the arc of your arrow and you know that sight picture, right like those are incredibly accurate reference points. Incredibly accurate, and right. just exactly like when I pulled back on that mule deer, I knew for a fact that was 31 yards. I knew it without question, and I talked myself out of it,
1: right? Absolutely. You know? So do you have plans to, uh, uh, hunt elk or any other species in 2018 with the stick and string?
2: Yeah. You know, I will, you know, I, I truly do like getting out with my rifle, um, when I have, uh, that elk in the freezer. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, I, I find it, it's just like a little more relaxed hunting for me, right? Like I cover a ton of country um and just check out a lot of new stuff right so that's that's where the rifle comes into play um but uh the uh yeah the elk elk archery elk mount is is always going to be a part of it um i think kenton and i are going to slip off and uh, meet up with um uh this surfer buddy ours mark healy um in hawaii in april and you know man I hear it's very difficult,
1: but an axis deer
2: deer would be incredible.
1: Yeah. That's on my bucket list. What, what an amazing place to be and an amazing animal to hunt. Are you guys going to try Lanai or Molokai or? I
2: have no idea. (laughs) I have no clue. Like, uh, Kent invited Mark out, uh, to hunt elk last year. And, uh, and, you know, we really got got to know each other and chase an elk, as you do. And and he invited us to go out. And so this is kind of his deal. I'm just oh, yeah. uh, I, being told when and where to show, show up.
1: I've heard access deer, some of the most amazing venison on the planet. And transitioning into um, that, I mean, I, I think you'd be living under a rock if people didn't realize that, Uh, you're, uh, a good friend of Steven Rinella and, uh, spent a lot of time with the meat eater crew and have been on their podcast and on their TV show and in their hunting camps and on their adventures with them. Um, which has been very, uh, it's my favorite podcast. Uh, it's, you know, I, I look forward to every Monday to see, uh, what Steve's got. It's, it's always good. Um, and you guys have been, uh, uh, you know, infectious on how I I've all I was raised to, uh, you know, I was taught by my mentor how to break an animal down and how to, to do my own butchering. But you guys have helped me take it to another level, um, and I do things a lot differently now. Keeping my muscle groups whole, uh, you know, utilizing pretty much the whole entire animal in its entirety um you know so you know i I appreciate you guys for that um why don't you maybe speak to you know uh, some of your favorite uh cuts and and some of the the way things have changed i know like the the shanks uh are being utilized uh a lot differently because of you guys and the call fat and a lot of this stuff, maybe, you know, if you wouldn't mind speaking to some of the meat and, and preparation of the meat.
2: Uh, yeah, the, uh, I'm always tinkering around with stuff like that as well. Um, even, uh, bought like a food journal to, uh, really try to pay attention more and dial some of this stuff in. Uh, cause it is, you know, that meat is precious. We work our butts off for it and, and there's certain parts of it that are, are not fun, right? Cause I'm stressed out cause I want to yeah. make sure that meat is taken care of. And it's
1: and, the, it's the gold at the end of the rainbow. And I, I seen, uh, on social media recently where you'd, was it like a 21 day cure? I mean, you'd, you'd had that sucker hanging for a while.
2: Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, conditions were kind of perfect for just uh, garage hanging. Uh, around here uh in october and uh yes i got like a real good rind on everything and um and yeah you got to experiment and 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 kind of push your boundaries right because like being the uh, bachelor that i am it's like you can only have so many sweet potatoes and steaks right so um it is uh yeah, a bunch of meat in the freezer is certainly the mother of invention for me. So, um, and variety is the spice of life, right? So the slow cooking, um, you can get amazing results with the crock pot and a pressure cooker and, and I mess around with the sous vide and, uh, use the trigger a ton for kind of that indirect heat. Um, and that thing's fantastic for wild game. Um, and, and, birds as well but uh, yeah it, it's it is an odd thing like some of the pieces that i absolutely covet the most it you know i'll, I'll give a loin away before i give away a, a front shoulder or a neck or a shank which is like the absolute complete opposite i mean stop me if i'm wrong here of how you're pretty much brought up in the hunting community right yeah um
1: Back because straps I, are everything right
2: yeah Yeah, man. And, and that,
1: uh, to me,
2: I would much rather give away a backstrap because I know people, uh, know what to do with it. It's going to be tasty. It's going to be familiar to them. Uh, and those tough chunks, the stuff that, uh, really has, uh, that connective tissue is, is really what, really what I like. Like, it just gives, it, it, it's it got like its own meat butter in it, right? Like once that, uh, connective tissue breaks down, the collagen breaks down and, um, you just get like all much more like in-depth flavors out of that stuff.
1: I, I saw what you were collecting tongues too.
2: Yeah, man. And you know, that, that is one of those dirty little things that, uh, I, I, th- I wish I wouldn't have hipped people too, because I used to get a lot of tongues every year because people knew I liked them and they didn't want to try them. Now everybody's trying them and, and, uh, pretty much the only tongues I get are the ones I'd collect myself.
1: Well, I, when I was, uh, opening up my, uh, blacktail buck this year, I had this, uh, I, I just looked and I seen these testicles and I thought, why am I leaving those in the field? And uh, the guy that was uh, with me, he was like, oh, you, you tell me you're not going to. And I said, oh, yeah. And I, I threw those in the bag with the heart and the liver, and I took those home and, uh, with the tongue. And, and uh, I pre- chopped those things in half and threw them in with uh, some thin slices of heart. Man, I'm never leaving the testicles in the field again.
2: That is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> that I'm, is awesome.
1: I'm telling you, you want to start collecting those. It is like a little bite of heaven of butter. I mean, it is, uh, yeah, that that is, uh, you don't want to leave those behind, I promise.
2: That is awesome. Yeah, man, I, I I just tell people, the the question that I get a lot that irks me to some degree <laughs> is like, does that really taste good? Uh, it's like, I'm not. I still want to eat tasty things, right? Yeah. Uh, I'm just more open to trying different things. I'm, and uh,
1: like, yeah. those, like those shanks in the neck, I used to spend hours trying to get grind off those. And now I took my whole neck and uh, split it in half and put it in the crock pot and did a, uh, a uh, curry. Neck recipe. It was awesome. It was amazing. I ate on that thing for like four days.
2: Yeah, uh, darn right.
1: Yeah, it's it's awesome. So, yeah, definitely uh, check these guys out. Uh, Steve Rennell has got a book. Uh, what's the title on that? Do you know?
2: Uh, well, he's got several. There's uh, that uh, 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 Meat Eater's Guide to Haute Cuisine. Yep, um, is that'll open your eyes a little bit for sure. Um, uh, <laughs> Escafier, you'll hear all Steve mentioned Escoffier many, many times. Um, and, and, you know, that guy basically got results uh, that you get today using technology out of, uh, you know, unused parts back then. So, um, Uh, that, that one's pretty darn cool. And then there's, there's definitely some really good stuff in, uh, the, um, meat eaters, uh, the, uh, field guides.
1: Yeah. The hunting harvest, big game and small game volume one and two. Yeah. There's some awesome stuff in there. It'll change the way you do things. And, you know, guys that are listening, if you're taking your animal to the butcher, um, definitely take the time and. Take that, uh, take that pot of gold home with you and, and work with it. You will may amaz- be amazed at the appreciation you will have. Uh, you know, making your own bone marrow and and uh, cooking up your shanks and uh, grinding your own burger. It's it's a huge part of the experience, and I feel bad for the guys that are missing out on it.
2: Oh yeah, man! Like I said, just take one extra thing every time. That's it. Yeah. Just take one extra thing. Yeah. Uh,
0: So, uh, yeah, let's go over over. real quick. I've never done the tongue. Can you explain, like, how do you cook the tongue out of a deer?
2: Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the tongue has its own skin to it, which you can definitely eat, but I find that it's certainly something I'll eat, but it, uh, serious difference, right. Between the meat of the tongue and the skin of the tongue. Okay. Um, and most folks uh, find it mildly offensive, I would say. So uh, boil it, throw it in the pressure cooker, either way. Uh, then uh, skin off those taste buds, the skin of the tongue, skin that thing off. Um, if you like, throw it in the freezer uh, for 20 minutes after uh, you pull it out of the, the uh, pressure cooker, the water, um, that skin will kind of separate like a okay. pepper will and uh
1: there's a there's a muscle in there that that texture you're thinking of bob of a tongue like when you bite on your tongue that's like a sleeve and it slips off that skin slips off and that muscle is in there
0: Mm -hmm.
2: yes yeah and then that muscle is like it's basically like a really good pot roast as is right you can put salt on it and call it a day but uh you know, you can do a bunch of stuff from there and make, uh, tacos or. So, uh, so
0: boil it, throw it in the freezer and then pull it back out and
1: unthaw it and it'll just peel right off. And then you can go to, you don't have to thaw it out. You just freeze it for 20 minutes or throw it in some ice water so you can get that skin off of the muscle. Sweet. Yes,
2: exactly. Yep. And then, uh, yeah. And then you're going to be left with something like very recognizable. And you can just go with whatever you want from there. So, Sweet. And, and well, I
1: think what Ryan's doing, by, a deer tongue is not a lot there. So if, if you keep your deer tongue and then your elk tongue and then your buddy, help, you go to help pack out one for your buddy or your dad or your brother. Yeah, nobody, nobody getting, takes a tongue that I know. So I'll have yeah, lots so, of tongue next year. <laughs> Yeah, so collect them, and then if you got two, three, four, five of them, then it's really worth the the effort, and then it's time for tacos, man.
0: Yeah, I'll try it. I was going to try. I know you tried rattlesnake this year, James. Yeah. I, I was going to this year, that place we've been hunting, there's quite a few snakes around, and I was like, I I'm, I'm kind of want to do the self-bow thing, so I told my brother, like, if you see one, get it, we'll eat it, we'll save the skin and everything. Well, first couple weeks – I was chasing a couple of big bucks around and I literally, and all the walking I've done over the years in the desert, you know, hundreds, probably thousands of miles never ran into one that wasn't, you know, I didn't hear and walk around whatever. Well, this one I was kind of in a hurry cutting off a buck and I literally jumped over the top of that thing. And so it really had me spooked. And so it was kind of end of the season when he finally got one and I'm like, I am not touching that thing. I creeped out. So, Rattlesnake and tongue—that's what I need
1: to try next year. Yeah, man. These guys came back to hunting camp when I was hunting antelope, and they had like a four-foot or a huge rattlesnake, and they—they uh, they had it, but then they were kind of scared to do anything with it. And I was like, "Well, look, I'll chop this thing up and cook it up, and I just put it in the skillet with olive oil and salt and pepper." And uh, when it was all done, all these guys are standing around, and they're literally taking like uh, like a, a tiny itsy bitsy morsel stick it in their mouth. They're like, God, yeah, I'm good on that. And one guy took a few bites and then no one wanted it. I ate the whole thing. It was awesome. It was so <laughs> good. Awesome.
2: Um, I, uh, we were, uh, uh, working on, on hunting camp, um, early one season and we had picked up a rattlesnake, uh, on the way there. And, uh, I had skinned the thing out and pitched it on the barbecue just purely for the lack of having anything else in any sort of, uh, usable capacity at that point, I would not recommend throwing the rattlesnake on the barbecue cause they get quite tough. But, um, I you know, it's dark. I have my headlamp on, I go over to check the meat on the grill and that thing had, Curled up into like a striking position.
0: Yeah. Right? yeah.
2: Headless, yeah. gutless, skinless snake. And, you know, like we just have this like deep in our core of our brain, right? This uh, fear of snakes, right? And man, I lifted the grill on that, my headlamp hit it, <laughs> and I tipped over the cooler behind me. yeah they're they're pretty wild yeah they're
1: they're, they creep me out that's for sure i found cutting i had the same thing happen so i cut them into like six foot chunks so that it got came uncoiled and i just really just kept uh i just didn't let it sit on one side i just kept you know flipping the pieces in the in the olive oil and salt and pepper and garlic and i think i threw some onion and bell pepper in there and i just kept kept moving it in the pan, kept moving it in the pan. And it was phenomenal. I had, I actually had a, uh, some blacktail backstraps back thought out that I was going to have for dinner that night. And I got full on the rattlesnake.
2: Oh yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, we used to, uh, collect quite a bit of, I hate, hate seeing things go to waste. So we used to, you know, typically if we saw it happen, uh, we were never, uh, a shame to uh, pick up roadkill. Um, and Eastern Montana, you know, semis, uh, when it's shipping time of year, they're whacking pheasants left and right. So uh, all you got to do is follow a semi down the road and you can get a limit of pheasants pretty quick. <laughs> um, so we had, we had a lot of rattlesnake and pheasant combos way back then. Nice. I,
1: I've been guilt. I've been guilty, uh, not, not deep into the season, but early into the elk season, and, uh, where I'm like on some elk, but there's a grouse over there, and I'm actually getting off the trail of the elk to see if I can get a get a mountain chicken in into my pack. Uh, oh,
2: absolutely, man, and yeah, I mean that's another deal, man. With the re- traditional archery, I I shoot so much more. Yeah, than anybody with a compound, right? Yeah, it's yeah, I'm shooting all the time.
1: I uh. I went with, uh, I've been trying to get my boss. I, uh, I do salmon habitat work, um, throughout the spring and summer and fall. And my boss is a uh, big elk hunter. He at the compound, but he's recently bought a recurve this year. And when we go out, he sees me shooting like nonstop. And in the beginning, he was kind of annoyed by it. He was like, man, you're just, you just shoot your bow all day long. And then soon, uh, I notice he gets a blunt, uh, uh, arrow And he starts trying to do some of that, but with the compound, he's just breaking his arrow and he's uh, losing his arrow. And, but I can tell he's jealous. Like he sees me shooting all day long and and there's a little jealousy there. And I I don't think it's going to take long to uh, get him onto the other side. So much, so much more fun.
2: Yeah. And, uh, and, 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 and really it's, it's an advantage, man. It is such an advantage. Like, uh, I'd, Worked my ass off to get into this spot where I was convinced the seven point bull was living. And, uh, you know, as it goes, like I gave up on him living there and took two more steps and blew him out of the country. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then uh, saw his little raghorn buddy who didn't quite know what was going on. And I just let him walk over the hill. I picked out a tree. Shot, uh, my bird arrow a couple of times and walked over the hill and killed him. So,
0: (laughs) yeah, yeah, I was like, "Mm, yeah,
1: I mean, I mean that big mule deer you missed, uh, if you would have missed him with the compound, uh, inside a 30, he probably would have blown out, but you, you took a shot and he was still standing around waiting for another one.
2: Yes. Yeah. Painfully so. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
1: That is awesome. Well, uh, we really, really appreciate you taking uh, some time out uh, to uh, spend with us. And we really look forward to uh, our paths crossing. Um, We're going to try hard to make it to that uh, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers Rendezvous in Boise, Idaho, I know, uh, it's going to be kind of a last minute decision on our part, but, uh, hopefully we can at least run over there for, for a day and, uh, rub some shoulders and, uh, you know, meet some more great folks.
2: Oh man. Yeah. It, I highly encourage anybody you can to make it. It's just, it's a, the energy in that get together is just, it's unlike, uh, unlike anything, you know, in it, uh, it's, it's just a bunch of passionate folks who like being in the woods. So
1: have you got to spend, uh, any time with Greg Munther? Yeah, a little bit,
2: a little bit. Uh, but, uh, nothing, uh, nothing real serious. He's, uh, uh, you know, running some of the same circles for sure.
1: All right. Yeah. That guy, that guy is definitely a stud when it comes to traditional bow hunting well uh yes. awesome uh you know thanks again and i look forward to our paths crossing in the future
2: yeah man that sounds great and thanks a bunch for having me on and uh good luck this spring
1: yeah thank you it's the same to you yeah thanks th- thanks
0: ryan and keep up the good work for all sportsmen out there we we appreciate it buddy
2: hey man i i appreciate that it'd be a hell of a lot easier to sit back and sell clothes so
0: yeah and kenton too you know you guys are doing the right thing and And all us sportsmen out there
1: appreciate it, so thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks again for joining us. We appreciate all the support. Don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Podbean. Check us out on our website, tradquest.com. We're on social media. Come check us out on Instagram. We're posting pictures daily. We love the interaction with you guys. Keep the wind in your face, pick a spot, and shoot straight.